let's go ahead and let's turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. And we will find ourselves in chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. Before we do that, though, I was reminded that I did forget about our fighter verse of this week. Um, Samuel, could you come here, please, real quick? So, uh, so we, I want to do that um, real quick. Fighter verse of the week uh, comes actually from Jude chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Jude chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Um, and so again, I, before we actually go into 2 Samuel and read the um, read that passage of Scripture, I um, would like you to, uh, to uh, let me read this for you, and then we will uh, move forward. So second, uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says this, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Um, so with that said, um, would you please join me as we, as we say this together. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, and we will read verses 1 through 11 actually uh, for, our, for our purposes. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 11. 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. So, um, when you found that place... Okay, okay. okay. Uh, I've lost my sermon, so we're, we're going to give this a whirl. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. It says, uh, and I'm going to ask you to physically stand with me as you're physically able to do so as we stand together in the reading of God's holy and magnificent word. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord given to us this morning. And it came to pass when the king sat in his throne, uh, oh, excuse me, when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells where, within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelled in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in the tent and in the tabernacle. And all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I, have, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build you not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. 
And I was with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. They may dwell in a place of their own place of their own and move no more neither shall the children of wickedness of wickedness afflict them any more as before time and as since the time that i commanded judges to be over my people israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies also the lord tells you that he will make you a house let's pray father we thank you for your grace and your mercy and we thank you for for the the purpose of of mercy that you have given to us in christ God, we thank you for small kindnesses of, of giving us, uh, um, giving us uh, the, the blessings of uh, being able to be able to be here and rest in Christ this morning. We would ask that we would, you would help us to give us uh, wisdom now in your word. And we pray for your namesake that you would be glorified. And we pray that you would help us to rest even more so in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. And thank you, Vince. Uh, you saved me for finding my sermon. Thank you. Uh, so Second so Samuel chapter 7, right? Uh, we find ourselves uh, in a place that seems familiar to us because we see we've been dealing with David for quite a while now. Uh, we've, we've been dealing with David and the promises. We've seen God fulfill his promises to David. We've seen the Ark of the Covenant come into Israel. We've seen, or into the, into the new capital, Jerusalem. We've seen the Lord do great and wondrous and mighty things through David. Everything from uh, when, he was, uh, when he slayed Goliath to his, his work upon, um, uh, in, in, in being uh, for Saul, even, dis- even despite Saul's um, not being for him and trying to kill him. And so we have seen God do miraculous things, and we come to our text, and through, just like throughout all of the other uh, in, in, in encounters and engagements that God has had with David, God now makes promises and, and promises to bless David. And so that's the title of the sermon this morning, is The God Who Makes Promises. I don't want to so much go like we normally do verse by verse through here, um, dealing with each and every single verse, but I do want to point out to us the character and the nature of God. Before we get anything into anything else, uh, we'll come back next week, Lord willing, and, and finish, uh, go over this again because I do want to deal with the chapter itself. But I, I do want us to see the fact that the God who makes promises to David is the God who made promises to us through Jesus. And it is this God that we can trust. It is this God that we do trust, that, that even in the midst of great suffering and affliction, the God who has given to us his only beloved son is and in the fulfillment of the Davidic promise here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is the God who still keeps promises. And so this is my prayer this morning. As we, as we go into this time that we would see this, that we would see the character and the nature of God, that we would, we would be able to, to hear of God's greatness, and that would encourage us in our faith this morning. And it's, a, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing reality that we face this morning. That as, 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 as God, as David wants to bless and praise God, God at the very end in verse 11 actually makes the promise that he's going to bless David. God switches this, this around. God switches David's desire, right? And, and so we, we read here um, of, God, of David's desire of to honor the Lord and to bless him, and yet God turns this around and chooses to bless him 
David desiring to build God a temple and a house, but, da- but God promising to build, rather, as he says in verse 11, to build David now a house. It's an amazing reality. It's an amazing promise. And I think ultimately, as we'll see, it points us ultimately to Christ and the promise that God made to us in Christ, uh, that, is, that, that as Christ has fulfilled this promise to David. So this morning, what I want us to do, I want us not to, I want to encourage you not to be plagued by a low view of who God is. And I I don't think necessarily anybody here has that problem, but I do want to encourage us nonetheless not to have a low view of who God is, but rather to see him in all of his vastness and greatness and all of his glory. And so this morning, what I want to do is, again, I want to show us the show us the character and the nature of Almighty God. So here's the first thing I think that jumps out to us or jumps out to us from the page of Scripture here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that is simply this, the immensity of God, the immensity of God. And you say, well, well what does that exactly mean, Pastor? I, I don't quite understand what you, what you mean when you say the immensity of God, right? Yes, I understand God is, is huge and massive, and I, I can't fully comprehend him. Well, that's part of what I mean. But I also mean that in the sense that, that as, as a result of who he is, of his immense, his greatness and his glory and his majesty and his, his ongoing uh, just powerful power and his and his his sovereignty that should actually affect how you and I approach approach him in worship because when we say God is immense I think we I think it's important for us to 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 come down to 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 define what that means and maybe even a little bit better than that what we mean is first and foremost is that the God that we worship is not just great right but that first and foremost, he is infinite, right? That is that God is above all of our understanding, that his God is beyond all of our understanding because of his greatness, right? It doesn't mean that we can't know things about God, right? It doesn't mean that we, we can't know truth about God, right? Otherwise, God wouldn't have given us the Holy Bible. But it does mean that as we, comp- as we think about his greatness, there is no way for our minds to ever fully comprehend the absolute greatness and glory of who God is, he is so far beyond us that we can't even begin to comprehend what he is, what he is ultimately fully like. That's why God says to even to Moses, uh, he says, you know, Moses, you can't see my face because if you did, you would die. Uh, that is how holy God is. And so when we say that God is infinite and when we say God is immense, I think it's important for us to think about it in these terms. When we say God is great... We're not just saying God is great. We're saying that God is so great that there is no being who, can, who, is, who is anywhere close to being greater than he is. That when we say God is, is wise, he's not just wise, but he is wiser than any and everyone else in this universe, in this created universe. That that is that when we say that he is gracious, he is not just gracious, but he is more gracious than we could ever possibly comprehend him to be. It means that God has no limits in what he has revealed to himself, his characteristics, that when we say God is grace, we are only able to experience just a drop of how, how gracious God is. Or when we taste of God's wisdom, we are only able to taste of but a drop of God's wisdom and just that that bare drop is enough 
to cause us to live in absolute awe of who he is. And this is encouraging because ultimately what this means is, and Job, I think, says it best when he says it this way, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That means that God has no rivals. That means that God has no absolute rivals. Nothing is in, is in danger of shaking his plans or shaking his providential workings out of all things. But God is going to do great and wondrous things. And he proves this to David in the way that he relates to David, in the way that he, dis- as the way he talks to David. Listen to how Listen to how God speaks to David in verse 5, right? So David has desired to build this, this tabernacle, um, this, this, this temple, and he's, he's talked to Nathan. Nathan says, sure, go do this. But God has another message that he delivers to David through Nathan, and he says this in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelled in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I have commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, you shall, so shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from the following of the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men that, I have, that are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they may dwell in a place of their own, and may move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Listen to how God relates to David. God doesn't say that he dwells in a tent he says that he has he has or that, that that's the only place where he dwells right he says he has walked with the children of israel and used this tabernacle as this tent as a place for them to come and to have conversations with him to to relate to him and it's important for us as we think about god being infinite we need to understand that that when we say this god himself transcends our experience and this is david's god's point to david david I'm walking with my people Israel, but I am so much greater than you could possibly even imagine, right? Everything in our, in our experience, of course, is, is capable of being a bit more, right? A powerful hurricane could be a bit more. A fast rocket could be a bit faster. The sun is hot, but beyond compare, God is not confined then to local places and local spaces, Right? This, is, this is the way many of the people of this time saw their gods. They saw their gods as being the gods over the hills or the gods over the valleys or the gods of the sea or the god of the, the plain or the god of the sky or the god of whatever. And this is why when, when, when the Philistines beat the, uh, destroyed the army of Israel and they took up the ark of God, they took it 
and they placed it before their god Dagon, saying that Dagon was greater than God, right, than Yahweh, the God of Israel. But they walked in the next morning, and Dagon was fallen over, bowing before the Ark of the Covenant, right, showing that it was not Dagon who is greater, but it is God who is greater, and delivered the nation of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. They set Dagon back up, and they set the Ark again right before the, the temple of Dagon, or before the statue of Dagon. But this time, God causes the statue to fall over in the night, and they walk in the next morning. And this time, not only has the statue of Dagon fallen over, but the head of Dagon has been cut off, and so have the hands of the statue of Dagon, showing again, God is not to bow, will not bow before the gods of the nations. It is God who delivers his people up for, uh, for punishment and for chastisement. It is not that the gods of the peoples are greater. right? God, Yahweh, the, Jehovah, the Lord, is not confined to spaces. And he is certainly not like the so-called gods of the nations. The ark and the, and the tabernacle was, was God, uh, God uh, working with his people to understand him in a way that they could interact with him. The tabernacle served only as a way to point us to a greater reality. As, as, as God points out here in verse 11, right? You want to make me a house? But I'm going to make you a house, David, and, and we'll talk about more about this next week as we talk about the, the ultimate, the, 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 the promises that God ultimately makes to David. But, but, but my brothers and sisters, we need to understand that even when it appears and seems that like the wicked and the nations are raging and roaring, that in reality they but serve the purpose and plan of our sovereign God. They are not greater than he is. They have not thwarted his plans. They have not thwarted his purposes. They have not destroyed his, 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 uh, his, his right of rule and reign. But instead, they, are bow they will and are, even if they don't quite yet know it, bowing before Christ. Solomon would later express this reality, I think even better, in, or more clearly, at least, in 1 Kings 8, 26 and 27, when he said, And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Or Isaiah 66, 1, when it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? Ultimately, all of this points us to Christ. Because you see, the tabernacle and the temple later will actually only point us to the reality of what comes in Jesus. And that is simply this. Emmanuel. God with us. God dwelling among us. God living sinlessly in this life. God living for, his, for the glory of the Father and magnifying the Father and redeeming through his death, burial, and resurrection his own people for his own glory. And it is God who is in the hearts of the people working faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see this reality presented to us by the tabernacle and the ark and all of these things pointing us ultimately to Christ. But in saying this, we also need to understand and say it this way. God is also incomprehensible. Right? God is incomprehensible. Again, not that God cannot, that we can't know certain things about God, but God is beyond what we can even begin to comprehend. 
right? God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have parts about it. I know God speaks in language and in, 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 in terms in which we can understand, but we ultimately understand God is spirit, right? That God doesn't have, you know, even when it talks about the face of God, like God doesn't have a face like we have a face, it's it, it, there's there's a difference here when and so God is God is ultimately so much other than we can even begin to comprehend him that he is the one who has sought us out he is the one who has come to us he is the one who has bought us he is the one who deals with us he is the one who does all of this for his own glory right God is God is beyond our ability to fully comprehend or understand all that he is even though we do and are allowed glimpses of what he is like but the Bible still says that God's ways are mysterious and beyond our limits of understanding because God does what God does for his own glory. I think the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, says it best when it says in chapter two, verse, uh, chapter 2, section 1, The Lord our God is but one living, only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. And Paul actually goes on in Romans chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God has done everything that God has done for his own glory. God has worked out all of the plans that he has worked out in, in Christ and in our lives for his purposes and for his own glory and for his own honor's sake. God is the one who is at work. God is the one who is, who is working all things out. That if we could but see his ultimate plan, we would have no way of even being comprehending it because of, of who God is and what he is doing in this world. But when we're saying this, we also need to say that God, God tells David, in telling David he will build him a house, uh, that, that God will build David a house, not the other way around. We need to understand that, that in God explaining to David uh, how he has interacted with the children of Israel through the tabernacle and later we'll see in the temple, that God is transcendent. And what I mean by that is simply this. God is not dependent upon his creation. Like God is, you know, sometimes you'll hear people, and, and I wish, you know, growing up, that I, I had some very good Sunday school teachers, and I had some very iffy ones, because I remember one particular lady, she was a very, very, very nice lady, but I remember her saying to us one time, talking about God, I was like eight, nine years old, she said, you know, God is in the rocks and the trees and the birds and the bees, and at the time I'm thinking, well, I don't think I've ever heard that before, but I don't know that that's right, Right? And then later on, I come to find out, no, that's not right. That's pantheism, right? That's, 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 not, that's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of Buddhism or, or Hinduism or all these other things, right? No, no, no. God is not dependent upon, to, 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 upon his existence and the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. And he's not in those things. He, is a, he has made those things and he's above those things and he's beyond those things, even though he chooses to interact with those things. God is over and beyond creation and the created order. He is superior to creation in every way. And the whole earth is nothing before God. Isaiah actually describes the nations as literally as nothing but a drop in a bucket, insignificant before the eyes of the Lord. And listen to what he says here in Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are but as a drop in a bucket, 
and are counted as small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor his beast, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are regarded by him as less than nothing and worthless. So here is what I'm saying. God does not need us. Now, he certainly chooses to interact with us and loves us and cares for us, most definitely. But God, should we, have never, should we never exist, God is not affected in any way, shape, or form. God does not need our labors, though he commands our labors, right? And we are, he blesses us in our service to him. He does not need our, our money, and yet he certainly calls us to give with generosity and with charity and with, 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 with the, the wealth that he has given to us, whether it be small or great, to certainly use that for his glory, right? Because we understand that all of that comes from him. And so we, we give and we offer for the glory of God. He does not need our worship, though certainly he is worthy and calls us to worship him. And he is right to do that because he is the one who has created us. And it's interesting because God ordered Moses and then Solomon to build him a place, a place for him. But the purpose, the purpose in doing that was not so that they could go to the house and point to God and say, there's God. The point of it was that we, to teach us of our need of his presence on a greater and grander scale that he ultimately fulfills for us in Christ. And Jesus himself points this out when he tells his disciples, it is better that I go away, to, away, right? Because if I don't go away, right, in John, he tells them this, I cannot say, I will not be able to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, and so even now we understand the greatness and the need of Christ and the, the pointing of the, timber, the tabernacle and the temple to Christ so that God ultimately now doesn't dwell between cherubim in the ark of the, on the Ark of the Covenant, right, and, in, and interact with us that way through sacrifices of bulls and goats and, and rams and lambs and turtle doves and all of this. But ultimately now through Christ, he deals with us and he, he speaks to us through Christ and the word of Christ, the word of God that we are given, the Holy Bible and we understand that he is the one worthy of our worship Jesus Christ Emmanuel God with us now being the creator not just the creator but now the mediator who brings us into the presence of God and brings the presence of God into us it's an amazing reality that God has given to us but there's another reality here in God giving David this promise and, and I think it points to, to another character of who God is, another, another part of God's nature, which is that God is sovereign, right? And, 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 and we don't want to ever throw that word around lightly. We, we want to rightly understand the sovereignty of God in doing this, right? When God says, David, David, I know you desire to build me a house, but you're not going to build my house. Your son will build my house, but I'm going to actually build you a house. God says a couple different things in calling and saying this saying that he is sovereign. In other words, the only way God can make this promise is if God controls everything and can assure David that this will take place. You know, because there are people out there that say, well, you know, God is learning. No, God is not learning. 
God is most certainly not learning. God knows it all. God has everything worked out for his glory in his, in his, in his mind and in his, in his heart. And by the, by the persons of the Trinity, God, God has worked all of this out already long before we have ever entered into existence. And God reigns over his creation so that he can now say to David, David, because I am God and because I am sovereign, I make you this promise. God in Revelation is continually seen as sitting upon the throne. Christ is seen as sitting upon the throne in Hebrews and in Revelation. Uh, Jesus is also seen as walking about among, his, uh, among the lampstands. But ultimately we, we see that Christ and the Father uh, and, and the, 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 the seven uh, spirits of God, which ultimately a reference to the Holy Spirit in Revelation, ultimately depict God in all of his fullness, the Trinita- our Trinitarian full God, is sitting upon his throne of power. And God, because he is sitting upon his throne of power and is sovereign over all things, so much so that in Revelation, when John begins to weep and to wail because no one was able to open the scroll, it says, the angel comes to John and says, John, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the one who is going to open the the scroll, and he does. He is the one who will judge the nations. Isaiah 6.1, in the year of, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. Right, that's right. High and lifted up. His train, the train of his robe filled, his t- filled the temple. Right? In uh, Psalm 90, 45.6, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness, and the scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. And God's display of himself upon the earth has been all about Building his kingdom. God is the sovereign king of kings and and ruler of rulers. There's a word that, that goes there, potentate. He is the only potentate over all creation. And he ultimately displays his dominion. Do you know how and in whom? Ultimately, it is in Christ. He presents his ultimate dominion in Jesus Christ. And God is declaring to David that he is establishing his throne, the Davidic monarchy, would be everlasting. And that the only way that is possible is for Messiah to come through David's line. And that is what it says in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Listen to what it says here. Follow this up. We'll talk about more about this next week. And it says, And when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. It's in the singular which shall proceed out of your bowels or from, from, from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Ultimately, right, he is talking about Solomon. But listen to this. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But ultimately, not only, but, but just so David is, is clear about who this is pointing to, in verse 16 it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Solomon did not live forever. Solomon could not live forever. David did not live forever. The Davidic kings ultimately sinned and were expelled from the land with the, with the southern kingdom. And so ultimately God is pointing us to Jesus Christ. God is declaring that in Christ, Jesus will be the fulfillment of all of this. God is infinitely then sovereign. He rules, he governs, he's accomplishing his purposes, his purpose upon this earth. 
I think there's one other way that we see here in our text the person and the work of God himself, the nature of God, and that is God's grace. God is gracious to us. God is gracious to David. God is gracious to us. God is just gracious in general. And when I say that, what I mean is that we should be, as David ultimately is, because David worships before the Lord, right? Because of this promise, um, David, David is astounded by God's promises that he makes here in the text. And, and, and so, so should we. We should be, as David was overwhelmed by God's sovereign grace. Because God's grace is undeserved and unwarranted. In other words, I don't deserve it, but God gives it freely to us. And this should cause us to worship. This should cause us to sing. This should cause us to praise Him for all that He has done. God's, God's grace is, is, is completely unwarranted and undeserved. I didn't, I didn't earn God's favor. I didn't deserve God's favor, right? But God's grace reflects his abundant goodness. God has opened the treasures of heaven and poured out his blessings to us in Christ. Paul, uh, Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul makes this immensely clear that God has become our treasure and we his purchased possession. And God's grace is eternal in that it does, inf- but it does inf- unfold in time, right? So God in past has been gracious to us. God presently is gracious to us. And God promises that in the future he will be gracious to us. And we have to observe, I think, how tenderly God deals with David, right? The, the only way David could know the error of his plan was for God to communicate to him through whom? Through Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet, Most, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people say, well, David jumped the gun. Well, no, David goes to the prophet Nathan and he says, hey, this is my plan. I want to do this. What does God say? And Nathan says, yeah, sure, do it. And then later on, Nathan comes back in just a short time and says, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that to you, David, because God says this, right? And he says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Right? And so I, don't, I think we do the text in injustice when we say, oh, well, see, David jumped the gun. No, no, David, David, David went to the prophet Nathan, whom God speak, spoke through. Nathan said, well, hey, why not? Right? But even in all of this, God deals tenderly and graciously with David in that he does say, look, David, you're not going to do this. Thank you, but no, you're not going to do this. God commands ultimately Nathan then to bring his word. But, but listen, listen to how God is gracious to David. In verse 5, he refers to David as my servant David. And then he talks about him as, as his servant in 2 Samuel 7, 8. He even talks about how he took him from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. God reminds David of his grace and he speaks to David as a son tenderly and mercifully and graciously. You know, brothers and sisters, I would say this to us. Yes, God is most certainly just and righteous and holy and sovereign, but we cannot forget about his tender care that he still speaks to us tenderly and graciously in Christ. God has poured out his wrath upon his son Jesus that we could taste the grace of God and the righteousness of God in Christ. And God still speaks to us tenderly and, and caringly. And as a father speaks to his son, he speaks to us still through his, through his word that he has given to us. And God reminds David of his care and his protection. 
just as he reminds us of his care and his protection in us and through and for us in Jesus Christ. And this is why God says to David, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies. The same is true for us in Christ. God has cut off all of our spiritual enemies. He has taken all everything that separated us from him out of the way, nailing them to the cross, as Paul tells us in Colossians. And he has now made us right with Jesus, with, through Jesus, with the Father through Jesus. God graciously enters into a covenant with David, as he does with everyone who will repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. God graciously enters into a covenant through his son Jesus with those who will repent and believe. So let me show you then, I, I, I think maybe you've already seen and heard, uh, maybe pointed out to you where Jesus is here. But I do just want to just camp out on this for just a moment. Because we do see in this promise in chapter 7, verse 11, we do see a couple of different things. We do see ultimately that Jesus, Jesus is fully God and fully man, the second person of the Trinity who came down to us. He, we did not come to him, he comes to us. And God was pleased to, to reveal himself through his covenants throughout history. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, now the Davidic covenant, right? These were all gracious acts of God in, in, in bringing us ultimately to our covenant head, Jesus Christ. And I think we need to remember that it is God who has done this. It's not us, right? We didn't do God a favor by believing in him. Right, God did us a gracious work in redeeming us and bringing us to faith in Christ. As the, I think the London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 7, chapter, paragraphs 1 and 3, I think rightly say, though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures was, is so great that they could have never attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been so pleased to express this through a covenant framework. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. And after that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the new covenant. Christ has, is God's gracious extension to us. God come to us. Emmanuel come to us to die for us, to raise again on the third day, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, that we may taste not just the righteousness of God, but the fullness of God in Christ for us. And God continually displays this covenant of faithfulness and graciousness, not just through Israel, but ultimately in Christ. He does so through Israel, right? 2 Kings 13, 23 says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Adam, or I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. And the fullness of God's promise to Israel is Jesus. There is not any other name under heaven by which men, Jew and Gentile alike, will be saved. There's not. There's not. No one is going to be saved because they're a good Jew. God's promises are fulfilled in Christ for Jew and Gentile alike. 
to the person and the work of King Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all these promises to Abraham and then to David, ultimately are found in Christ. And God's grace finds its fulfillment through the gospel in this new covenant through King Jesus. My brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to see his greatness for you and on your behalf, on your behalf through King Jesus, through Christ's coming for us. So let me, let, me, let me apply it in this sense. I think there, there's a couple different ways I want to apply it, and then we'll, then we'll pray and we'll through. Here's the first reality. In Christ, God gives us rest. Rest from the... Jesus himself says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he says. Now, does that mean that Jesus is going to fix all of our problems and make everything okay? No. But for the weariness of our soul and our spirit... He gives us rest. I was talking to a man just this week who came, who, who, who made contact, uh, found our church online, made contact with me, and we spent some time just talking back and forth, and he talked about his absolute just tiredness, uh, and it came down to the fact he had tried Jesus, but my point in all of this was Jesus is the true rest that you need. And I would say that to us again. Jesus is our true rest. He is the one who gives us rest. He is the one who is the rest for our weary souls. But I would say this. I think the, 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 the father of modern missions, a man by the name of William Carey, I think said it best, right? That we should, in fact, uh, attempt, right, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. I think David proves this. God doesn't rebuke David for his desires, God doesn't rebuke David for wanting to do this. He just says, David, thank you, but you're not the man. You have blood on your hands. You're not the man. You are not the one to do this for me. But God doesn't rebuke him for his desire to do great things for him. As a matter of fact, he still allows David to assemble all of the, the, the wood and the, 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 everything, the materials necessary so that Solomon, when he becomes king, ultimately is able to build the temple. And God still allows us to attempt great things for him. And I think we should, and we should expect great things from him. But in all of this, God still reminds us of our weakness because his goal in doing this is that we would rest and rely in him. And we are reminded of his faithfulness. And that, yes, while God does close doors, right? And, and, you know, the old saying goes, you know, God closes doors and he opens windows. Eh, I don't know that I believe that, but I would say this. God does close doors, but he also opens doors. He also opens doors. And God gives us hope then, ultimately through Christ. God gives us ultimately hope through Christ. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. No matter where you are this morning, no matter how weary, no matter how, 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 how afflicted you may be, no matter how sorrowful your soul may be, Christ is the one who gives you rest. He is the one who has, who has, who has fought for our joy in Christ. Use the word to fight for your joy in Christ. Christ knows your need. Christ knows my need. Christ knows our need. Don't run, don't hide, flee to Christ in mercy. He is gracious and loving and kind and caring and compassionate to his people. But for those of you who have, may have never found refuge in Christ, let me encourage you. All of your seeking, all of your searching, all of your trying everything else in life will leave you empty. 
and unfulfilled because your soul was made for Christ. Come and flee to the one who has, who has sought out and died for sinners, that all who repent and believe in Christ would be saved. Flee to King Jesus this morning in faith and in hope, knowing that he is gracious and kind. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is that in giving us, as your word I believe has done, a greater vision of who you are, or a, greater, a greater understanding of who you are. Let us see just how great you are, God. I pray that this would drive us into our worship, into our serving Christ, and to being a blessing to the nations through preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Help us, guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.